Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello, quarantines. Hello, quarantine people. How's everyone doing? Are we good? Are we losing our mind? Lauren, how are you doing on the good to losing mind spectrum right now? Probably a little bit both. Um, Yeah. Yeah, not a whole lot is going on here besides working. Um, Nick and I recently got back into Gargoyles. Okay. The cartoon from the 90s. The, the 90s cartoon. I don't know if I've ever seen that. You must. It is wonderful. Do I need to? Yes. It's okay. on Disney+. Plus. Um, I love Disney+. Plus. I do too. I also didn't realize that Gargoyles was made by Disney. Um, so that was a little interesting, because, like, as we're watching it as adults, I'm like, damn, like, this is dark for children. Um, I will say, as an adult human with a, who lost a parent pretty early in life, Disney is way darker than you think it is. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> Like, there's this. so many dead parents, that's something that I think is, uh, it resonates with me quite a bit in the movie industry is like in children's movies, mm-hmm. how many children have dead parents. And if both of your parents are alive, like you don't actually think of it. And I didn't, but after my dad died, it was like every, I was like, Oh, let's watch a Disney movie. That will make me feel better. And then it's like, here's their dead parent. And I was like, fuck, I hate everything. I so it's like, Disney this. is actually it's so dark sometimes. It really is. Because, like, I remember it was, like, the first episode of Gargoyles, and, like, someone's, like, telling them, like, oh, you, you can't escape the flames of hell. And I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> That's very intense. But all in all, good show. Great show. Um, we've been really into eating ice cream sandwiches and watching that, so. That sounds like a great evening yeah. to me. What have you yeah. been doing? Um, I've gotten really into skincare, which I was already, uh, yeah, I was already pretty into it to begin with, but, uh, it's taken alarming new levels, but I also think that I finally have the time to, like, actually do my routine. So, I'm gonna say, for those of you who can't see me right now, my skin looks pretty damn good. I'm gonna call it, I think it's working. Glowy. I'm gonna take a look, I'm a little glowy, so, you know. All of my effort is working. Um, I've definitely lost my mind, though. I'm starting a cult in The Sims. That's another big thing going on in my life. Um, I support this. I think this. you're always... Yeah, I, it's kind of fun. I think you always end up like starting a cult in The Sims. Um, for those of you who played The Sims a lot when you were younger and haven't played it, they're selling it for $5 right hey. now, so just buy Get it. Involved. And uh, endless fun. Yeah, basically, I'm having my Sims. I I only created one, and then I'm just having them birth as many as possible. Um, See, I to take over that a town. you are starting a Sims cult, and that's definitely one route you can take. I would say the route that I remember taking was really almost um, homicidal behaviors. Where Ooh, okay. um, I would intentionally put a sim in a house, have them start cooking with no experience, and then remove the door. 
and just kind of see what happened. So you just burn your sims to death then. Interesting. See, so far, my sims have only died of old age. Um, Because in in Sims 4, they die. But then you can make them ghosts. That's kind of fun. And you can invite the ghost into your household. So, like... (laughs) This is really funny. So my first sim, her name was Tallulah. Cute. And she married this absolute douche named Edison. He was the fucking worst. Did you but also they make liked him? Each- I did not oh, okay. make him. He was just like a character. And so they had their first child. And that was fine. And she was a toddler. And then it was like, he's about to die. And I was like, fuck, we need to get a second kid in now. So I had them try for a baby and he left the room and died of exhaustion and that she was pregnant. (laughs) And so he was a ghost dad. So he came back, we invited him to the household. He's still with the one of the girls in their house um and he's still working you can make him get a job and everything the only issue is that they keep he keeps haunting all of the plumbing and then breaking everything well that's the worst so but you can make them ghost repair it and they just like hop back in and fix it so you know it's a very dramatic thing i'm also basically keeping all of the urns of everyone who dies so there's just a lot of ghost activity a lot of ghost dust in the house yeah, I don't know the theology of this cult that I'm starting, but uh, it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. We're giving the kids some weird, creepy names good. and, you know, good, good, all, all around wholesome, good fun. Yeah, I remember back in the day when I used to play Sims a lot, I used to, like, you know, have my little brother play with us, um, and we would, like, intentionally, like, make him like bad characters and force him into like so like for example like we're like hey Lincoln like you should play with us like we're gonna make this Sims family and it was me and my stepbrother and then my little brother Lincoln and so what we did is like we made like these really cool characters and we're like okay Lincoln now this is yours and we named it Mama's Toenail Fungus. And it was like <laughs> this like wolf boy. <laughs> oh my. We're like, here, Lincoln, you can be him. And then we would like intentionally try to kill him. And it was pro- probably psychotic, but good times. Well, I will say, though, like the fun thing about The Sims, and I think you'll exhibit a lot of behavior. I had this theory very a long time ago. So basically... The Sims is just Barbie dolls. Yeah, I it's agree. It's just dolls, right? And you do really... Cre- what, was, what is the creepiest thing you did with your dolls as a child? I don't think it was that creepy. To me, it was creative. Um, I, like, would cut all my Barbie's hair off and dye it with paint. Oh, I did that. Okay. The classic... Uh, barbie salon i did i actually got pretty good at giving barbies layers after a while because i cut their hair all the time um but like you do a lot of the same shit like you end up killing your barbies a lot or making them have sex oh yeah that was Um, a big one almost everybody i know had a barbie orgy at one time it happens um and it's like for kids they're trying to figure out like how adult relationships work and like how all of this stuff works so either with the dolls or the sims you end up just being like they can do this <laughs> and doing like really weird things with them yeah i mean so. it's a lot of fun 
Well, Super you'll fun. have to keep us updated on how your Sims are doing, how they're thriving, yes. and how the cult's going. Right now, we have eight people Good. and two houses. So we're trying to take over the entire town. That's the end goal. Um, and I'm trying to basically take over the entire town of entirely my Sims that I have created and I'm controlling without using any cheat codes whatsoever. Yeah. okay. So that's the goal. That's... uh. Fun. Maybe we should actually. Did we introduce ourselves on this episode? Oh no. Okay. So I am Lauren Malika. <laughs> I'm Megan Sowen. Um, I think a lot of you probably know that already. So. Uh, Megan Baker slash Megan Sowen, I guess, depending on at what point you started listening. But yeah, you probably know who we are at this, this point. This is spooky psychology. It is spooky psychology. Before we get into the topic today, we did want to start by giving a couple shout-outs and answer a listener question. We do love a listener question. We do. Um, So first and foremost, we we love hearing from you guys. So please send us messages. Um, We love to hear feedback and how you feel like we're doing and if there's anything that um, you would like us to do. We're, we're open to it, but most of all, we just like hearing from you guys, because it's pretty cool. Um, we just like you guys. We just like you guys a lot. We, we like you. Um, so yeah, so of course, um, you know, how we do most episodes, um, we wanted to give shout outs to our new patrons, and you know, really thank you guys for becoming patrons, especially during this weird time where... You know, things are scary, people are losing jobs, um, that really means a lot to us, and it really helps, um, support this podcast. Yeah. So. And I also, I, yeah, we appreciate, we've gotten several new patrons lately, yeah, so thanks, guys. It's been thanks, cool. Guys. So the first shout out is to Jenny Murdoch. Thank you, thank you, thank you. To Jen. Yeah, and. Very nice. Thank you so much. Is this someone Jen. you know at all or no? No. Actually, I think the interesting thing, I was just talking to my husband about this literally before we started recording, is that we've just actually gotten like a slew of patrons lately that we actually don't know in yeah, person. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Which, it is weird. The first few ones, it's like, oh, we know these like, people. My They're best great friend, people. My cousin <laughs> like, that I haven't seen in a while. <laughs> friends and family supporting us. And some of our OG fans, but now it's like people we don't know, and it's like, oh my goodness, people actually like, really us, like us that, that they don't know us in real life. Yeah. So yeah, so okay, so we got Jenny Murdoch. What up? What up? Thank you for being a patron. We appreciate you. Um, Thank you. Our next one is okay. So I don't know what their actual name is, but their screen name is Space Kid Spiff, um, and he. I don't want to gender this person because I'm not entirely sure. Um, but they go by Spiff. So we'll just call them Spiff. They've, that's how they've introduced themselves to us. So they're, they're Spiff. That is, that's what you we're know call who them. you, you are, know who Spiff. You are. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for being a patron of ours. And thank you so much for, you know, sending us this listener question. We'll answer now. I'm very excited about it. Um, so are you ready, Megan? I am ready. Okay. 
Um, I'll read the whole message. Or they said, I typed psychology into Spotify podcast and find you two. I have finished all of what you have in like two days. I can't say enough about how much I enjoy and appreciate your podcast. It's scientific, well-informed, well-spoken, and I have a lot of fun while you two have fun. I'm like, oh. Sobbing, reading It made me cry. Full, Full on, on, I cried. I cried too. Full on, I cried too. Yep, okay. My question. As someone who has lived mental lived with mental illness all my life and loves all things horror. I really think the horror genre has done us dirty. Do you guys think there are any horror movies that treat the mentally ill with respect with an accurate portrayal? Again, love your work. Keep it up. Spit. That's a tough one because in all honesty, I don't watch that many horror movies. I am actually not i like horror novels and i like true crime and i like campy horror movies but i do not typically like regular horror movies so i don't watch them okay Okay. so i think lauren would know more than me here so i have a couple of them that i would like to bring up um because you know spiff is right like there really aren't very many horror movies where it's like okay that's pretty accurate um and honestly, like, the ones that, like, I thought of may not even fall totally in the horror genre, but whatever. Um, so the first one that I thought of was the movie Dreamhouse. Have you ever seen it? No. Okay. So this movie is about this dude. Um, basically, long story short, you find out that he has schizophrenia. And it's so interesting because in the movie... There are a lot of things that happen and little details that, you know, when you find out the truth of how things actually are, you're able to put, like, all those pieces together. And so what I feel like they do a great job of is, like, in the movie Dreamhouse, um, this guy um, had suffered trauma and, you know, that kind of created this, um, not that it created schizophrenia, but I think it was, like the stressful event that kind of put him into that place, um, which makes sense because I, I do think that happens to a lot of people. Um, stress can be a big – stress and trauma can be like a starting factor to schizophrenia. Like they can kind of – you have to have the genetic yep. component, but it can trigger it to begin exactly. at that time because of that. Exactly. So I, I thought that part was like pretty good that they accurately like – depicted that um so it was like a traumatic event that started it and then they showed basically how his um mental illness basically made it so that he almost had like this false reality that protected him from you know experiencing the pain of essentially losing his whole family um so it was interesting like in the movie how they showed how like like the comparison between like what was real and what was like in his brain or how his brain manipulated things to protect him um so Mm -hmm. i would say that movie did a pretty good job and they it did it in a respectful way i mean obviously there are definitely like cinematic like things about it that you know all movies do to make it like more dramatic um but i would say that was pretty accurate um another one that i wanted to bring up um have you watched ozark at all I have watched the first season and part of the second season of Ozark. Okay. So I won't give away any spoilers to anybody <laughs> who's you, watching I appreciate it. Um, Ozark <laughs> right now. But, okay, so I watched season three. And season three, 
Um, one thing that happens is we're introduced to, I can't remember what her name is, um, but basically the wife, I can't remember what the character's name is, but the wife's brother, we get introduced to him. And in this season, um, as we're getting to know him, we learn that he has bipolar disorder. And the way they portray it in the show is pretty spot on. Um, really just like a lot of impulsivity, mania, um, you know, like especially when people are in mania, and I'm sure like you've probably experienced this working with people with bipolar disorder, you really can't reason with someone who's manic. Absolutely. Um, and just like, you know, how dangerous it can really be when they're off their medication. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So that's, yep. Yeah. So that's something that I feel like they did an excellent job on. I think they definitely did their research about what that's like to be like a family member with someone with bipolar or to have bipolar disorder. Um, and also they talk about something that I feel like isn't always talked about where the character, um, was having some difficulty because with the medication he was taking, he wasn't able to, um, you know, maintain an erection and have sex and things like that. And that so totally is something that happens to a lot of people where the, a lot of times, you know, the symptoms, um, or side effects that come with taking the medication while it keeps you safe, it also gets in the way of things that, you know, you enjoy or make life worth living. So I think it was good that they brought up that too. Yeah. Um, and I think those sound like great examples. Some of those I'll have to watch a little bit more closely. I have, again, you know, in short, it does not sound like we can think of a lot of good, like, straight-up horror with good representation, but there is good media representation. I'd also, I got a few I'd like to shout out as pretty good. Yeah. Um, Jessica Jones, the Netflix show, I have only seen season one. But I will say I think it was actually a pretty accurate portrayal of post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh. Um, you see her really struggling having flashbacks going through that and kind of seeing how obviously in that it is a superhero show. So there's superpowers and other things, but um, you kind of learn with her trauma and what she went through. I thought it was actually a pretty good portrayal of like the experience you see her like actually having the physiological arousal the heart racing those sorts oh, of wow. things that do happen mm -hmm. when she gets triggered and like showing her triggers and kind of how that works um i don't know why i can only think of good ptsd examples another one in big little lies oh yeah have you seen it i have I just watched season two yesterday. Um, Shailene Woodley's character has PTSD or has trauma post a sexual assault. And it does show pretty good, particularly in season two. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big plot lines is actually about her difficulty with sexual functioning. Yep after a violent assault so and how she's like really likes someone and she's hugging him and he tries to kiss her and she totally wants to and she has a flashback or they're dancing and he moves his hand and it shows her like coping with those difficulties mm -hmm. 
um, which is very, very common um, for survivors of sexual abuse or sexual assault. It's pretty common to have sexual triggers and sexual difficulty. And I think that's something that we don't always talk about. And so I was pleasantly surprised with that portrayal of it and just kind of like openly calling it out and like watching her have difficulty with it. Yeah, Um, I thought that was really powerful too. I think even um, Nicole Kidman's performance in... Oh, Nicole Kidman's performance of like a traumatized woman in both season one or two. I mean, we all know Nicole Kidman is a great actress, but she really, she really nailed it. She did, because she really was able to like show the audience like how complicated it truly is for people who, you know, you know, have these spouses that they love and it's hard to wrap their head around, you know, so much like abuse and mistreatment with the love and affection and like being a good dad and you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you watch season two? Oh yeah. Because even especially watching her, like, on the stand in the court scene try to justify why she stayed with her Mm -hmm. husband, it's so accurate and it's so good of her. You know, at one point she's like, when I was happy, I stayed because I was happy. And when I was depressed, I stayed because I was depressed. And, like, really just laying it down, like, how complex of a decision leaving an abusive partner actually is. Um you know, obviously not at all a horror show. It's very much a drama mystery yeah, type of thing. Yeah. But, you know, there may not be good horror representation. I have yet to see something that I would say is really good. I think yeah. in horror movies, it's it's kind of, it's played as a joke or it's played as, as part of the horror, right. typically. Or it's just completely, like, inaccurate and strange. Right. Like, I remember there's this... Um, horror movie i think it was called motel and like basically they're trying to say like the guy had like um dissociative identity disorder and like when they were like showing him like it was like it was like almost like comical how they were portraying it It just like it was not accurate and the reality of it is like dissociative identity disorder is so rare that like i don't know there's just, like, so many things about it where it was, like, very, like, cinematic. Yeah. I mean, I have worked with it before. I have, too. And it's very different. Yeah. And it's a lot sadder. It's a lot than sadder. Than people think it's gonna be. It's way more yeah. subtle. And, like, you know, it's not, like, these extreme, like, shifts. Yeah. It's very different. And that's one that I think is played in a lot of horror movies. Um, but it is exceedingly rare and it's very difficult for it to develop. Like lots of, pretty much everybody has trauma at some point in their life. Very few people are going to have that response to it. And so it's, it, it's so rare, but it's often played because it's like, oh, it's scary. So it's a horror movie and it's like, "Eh, it's different. Right. And I think in that movie, like the way they, it was like they were having like a therapy session I think and they're in the therapy session they were having the person like kill his altars and it's like that would never happen (laughs) yeah yeah there's always some interesting stuff like have you seen the sinner yes I seen the first one the first one okay the first one 
I, I psychologically, I was actually pretty on board <laughs> with the first season where it's like somebody has a trigger and she snaps and ended up killing someone, which was not like, you know, so the whole season is like, why did she snap and kill this guy? Right. Um, and the way they portray it, you're like, yeah, actually, that's something that like could reasonably happen with severe enough trauma, yeah. right? That totally is something that could have happened. But... Season two is really interesting. Season two is gets culty and weird. Um, um, and there's like some interesting therapeutic techniques put in there and a lot of like meditation and stuff that is just like, yeah, that's not. <laughs> but at least they're not playing it like it's a good thing. It's not like this is good therapy. They're like, this is they're like, we're doing the work. And it's like the work is crazy. Yeah. It's really intensely weird. Absolutely. So. But yeah, I, I mean, think that, to Spiff's question, like, you know, I don't think there is a lot of respectful portrayal in horror yeah. movies, unfortunately. In horror movies, I don't think there is, but like in the examples we did, like there are good examples oh, yeah. out there. Mm-hmm. There is good representation sometimes, and so those are just some ones that I would say, and I think you would say, overall are pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was a really good question, and, you know, Spiff, if you want to write in again and you have, like, a certain movie that you think does a good job or you want to talk about, like, we're fine talking about it. Yeah. So thank you so much um, for that, Spiff, and I want to also shout out a Facebook fan, Jen Gelfing. Oh, yeah. Jen sent us some great ideas and just the sweetest message, Jen, that made my day. It was it was it was so cute. She was saying like she was glad that we caught up on the last one because she was very worried that my wedding was going to be canceled because of COVID. I was like, that's so sweet that people were worried about it. I was worried. It turned out fine. It was a lovely day with a much smaller group than we thought it was going to be but it was a good time so thank you for your concern that was adorable and we really appreciate hearing from you guys um we love messages we both read them typically Um, cry and smile and (laughs) react like normal humans crying smiling general emotion so yeah anything else lauren at the top that you would like to discuss. I don't think so. I think that was about it. We're just very grateful for you guys. Thank you for continuing to listen. Thank you. You guys are all awesome. Um, so now for our topic, Lauren, would you like to tell everyone what our topic is today? I'm sure they read the episode title and already know, but let's go. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. Such fun. Should we talk about what are some good, like, what are the media representations of cannibalism? Oh, God. <laughs> There's the yeah. very popular Kesha song, Cannibal. Oh, yeah, I forgot um, about that. Which. <laughs> Are you laughing at what I just said? The fact that you just said it's a very popular Kesha song, just. They're all popular. <laughs> oh. <laughs> if you couldn't hear that, my husband said that all Kesha songs are popular and she is a queen, which I am I I love Kesha, I genuinely do. Um I just know this one is about cannibalism and there is a TikTok dance to it. I found that out from the youth, so it is increasingly although some of them think she's saying cannonball. Nope. Not cannibal. It's like nope, she's talking about eating people. Um 
classic example of sexual cannibalism because it's a very sexual song about cannibalism. Cannibalism. Um, there's Hannibal Lecter. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. that's, that's big a big one. one. Um, I just saw Silence of the Lambs for the first time like a couple months ago. What'd you think? I loved it. It was. I amazing. was gonna say if you didn't love Except, it. The, the entire time, as somebody who kind of works in the forensic mental health field, I was like, why the fuck would they send this, like, intern FBI training person to do... Like, it makes no sense that they would be like, hey, you're brand new and you know nothing. Let's put you on the most important, most dangerous thing. Yeah. Instead of, like... I know that they wanted somebody other than the guy to talk to him, which is fine. It's like, are you genuinely telling me that this new person, Clarice, is the only person in... It's the only woman in the FBI, apparently. Yeah. No one else can talk to him. So that bothered me for, like, inaccuracy. That is not how the Bureau would work, I don't think. Well, I almost wonder if it was, like, one of those things where, like, they sent her because, like, he could read people so well. And, like, she was, like, innocent compared to, like, the other best. I don't know. I mean, perhaps. I just, that was a weird call, in my opinion. But other than that, I really enjoyed the movie. Good. Um, um, yeah, other cannibals. Anyone else you can think of? Not off the top, but we'll get into it more. We will get into it more. Right. Wonderful. Um, so, yeah. Why don't we get into a little bit of the history of cannibalism? What do you say? I think that sounds great. Okay. So... Even before modern humans walked the earth, human ancestors practiced cannibalism. So this is this is old shit. Um, so the last common ancestor between Neanderthals and modern humans relied on cannibalism regularly, even when other food sources were available, which is interesting. Uh, these humans would sometimes hold cannibal feasts with members of rival groups on the menu. So that's a little spooky. Um, a little spooky. I think that's a lot spooky. A lot spooky. <laughs> I think eating people qualifies as a lot spooky, in my opinion. True. So the earliest humans in Europe, uh, 32,000 years ago, practiced ritual cannibalism. So according to a study pub- published in 2011, um, the oldest evidence of cannibalism suggests that humans ate other humans for not for nutritional purposes, but as rather part of funeral rites, which is interesting to kind of hear that um, it could be used like as a tradition in a way. During the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which ended with the destruction of the Second Temple and the sacking of the city, starvation and plague wore down the city residents. And then they ended up resorting to cannibalism to stay alive. So, you know, for survival. Um, Throughout history, human beings have dined on human flesh, whether it was an attempt to gain the enemy's strength or as a means to terrify opponents. I could see both of those being a thing. Um, You know, because I I think back then, you know, people were more into, I guess, like, abstract thinking, so I could understand why they'd be like, oh, if I eat this person, maybe I'll gain their strength. Um, but that bit about terrifying opponents, I think that 
would be super effective um, if I saw somebody eating somebody that would make me shit my pants. Um, so up until the Middle Ages, cannibalism was primarily practiced as a means to supplement nutrition. So starting around the 12th century, the practice of incorporating human remains into medical remedies was common practice, um, which I did not know. Mm-hmm. The deceased who unwillingly donated their bodies to medical science were stolen from Egyptian tombs or abducted from Irish burial sites. Um, and this is according to the Smithsonian Magazine. Treatments called for the use of bones, blood, or fat for conditions as common as a headache. And so this practice actually was called corpse medicine. Yeah, that is pretty common, um, and I think a lot of this stuff I'll touch on because some of actually the historical cannibalism is controversial research. Um, yeah, and you know I love a good controversial research situation. Um, but with corpse medicine, and I have this in a later slide, but I think it fits here, so I'll bring it up. And this is something modern. That is becoming a fad that is technically cannibalism. Can you guess what I'm talking about? Placenta encapsulation. Placenta encapsulation. Absolutely. And the thing is, some people don't encapsulate it. Some people, like, straight up make a placenta stew. Like, people do eat their placentas. Yeah, so I guess for... Anybody who doesn't know what a placenta is, a placenta is the sac that your baby grows in inside of your uterus, and after you have a baby, you have to deliver the placenta. So, it's kind of, it connects, it has all the nutrients in it that take the umbilical cord into your baby and feed them and nourish them and help them grow. So, a lot of animals will eat their placenta. After giving birth, it's pretty common in the animal kingdom. Um, For mammals, of course, you have placentas. And... It does have a lot of nutrients. It is what sustains the baby while it is inside of its mother. But um, as humans, we don't necessarily have to do that. We have access to a lot of groceries and vitamins and other things to help. Some people say that it um, helps prevent postpartum depression. I've heard that, too. I've heard that. I've heard that it brings the nutrients. I help, I've heard that it helps your uterus heal. I've heard lots of things. There's not a ton of research on whether or not eating... It doesn't seem to harm you at all. Like, I don't think people, if it's done correctly, aren't actually getting sick from yeah. eating their placenta. Do you know anyone that's eaten their placenta? I don't know of anyone per se, but I do know... Um, in the old building that our practice was in, um, the people that we shared this space with, they actually did placenta encapsulation for their clients. Okay. I have a friend who um, did placenta encapsulation and also did eat the placenta for one of her children. Um, I mean, I've heard really positive things. Lauren, do you think if you had a child, would you consider eating the placenta? I don't think so. I don't think I would either. I just, I can't foresee myself doing that. I would be much more likely to eat encapsulated placenta than, like, some of the people, like, literally just fry it up and eat it. I couldn't do that. Yeah, I just... I have a thing with blood vessels, as you all know. From phobia, so I absolutely could not do that. I don't think I would consider it. I guess if there was... 
if they researched it and there was a big enough research base that like it definitely helped with things i would be more inclined to but yeah and i mean like i take prozac so i'm sure i'll just continue doing that after having children (laughs) (laughs) just keep taking prozac that should help Right, like, I mean, right now, I just, I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, if there was a huge research base, I'd consider it, but I don't know. I, it's cannibalism. It's straight up, like, you are eating part of a human, like, being. So it's kind of an interesting thing that people think of cannibalism as, like, this horrific thing. But a lot of them are like, totally okay, or at least, like, somewhat okay with eating the placenta. Like, it is a thing that we do in this society, and I think in others as well. Which brings me to our cannibalism fun fact of the day. Cannibalism is not illegal in the United States of America. Really? Don't do it. There's a lot of negative health impacts to doing it, mainly Kuru disease. But it is not technically illegal, um, a lot of times they can get you on murder if you killed the person that you are eating or desecration of a corpse. But if you stumbled upon it and ate it, you would get away with it? You might get charged with desecration of a bo- dead body. That's illegal. Like, messing with a dead body is. But, like, actually eating it would not be an additional charge. Interesting. Okay. Right? Super weird. I don't know what to do with that um, information. <laughs> I don't know either. I think it might be illegal in certain states, but, like, federally, it is um, not. It's very interesting. So, so there is, honestly, a couple different types of cannibalism. Like, we're going to classify it a few different things, because I don't think you can talk about the psychology of, like, cannibalism in general, because people do it for different reasons and different motivations, and it's different for each. So, the kind of categories we're going to talk about, one is cultural cannibalism, the second is survival cannibalism, and the third is criminal cannibalism, which covers sexual, um, and, like, as part of a murder. Perfect. So, with... So... Theoretically, like, lots of cultures have engaged in cannibalism, but the motives are kind of hard to obtain if we're looking historically at cannibalism. So, like, there are some times where we're indicating that a culture is is a cannibalistic culture based on, you know, bone fragments of human bones having similar cuts and scrapes to that of animal bones that were clearly eaten, because obviously if you're going to eat human or animal, you do have to get the meat off of the bones, Right. So they've done some of the research. However, it is kind of interesting because there is a big jump between finding cannibalism in, like, one small area and assuming the whole culture did it when we know now, like, there are some people who are sexually motivated by cannibalism, there are some people who like to murder people, and it is quite possible that in some instances it may not have been the whole culture that was doing it, it may have been, like, one or two individuals in a society engaged in it, and we're overarchingly assuming that everyone did. So there's a bit of a question. Um, William Ahrens, the author of Man-Eating Myth, Anthropology, and Anthropophagy, I did not research how to say that word, I'm sorry, 
Um, he questions the reliability of, of reports of cannibalism and argues that the description by one group of people of another group of people as cannibals is consistent and demonstrative um, of cultural superiority. And so he bases thesis on detailed analysis of numerous classic cases of cultural cannibalism cited by explorers, missionaries, and anthropologists. He asserts that many were steeped in racism, unsubstantiated or secondhand or hearsay evidence. So there is some controversy, both because if it's, you know, you found it in one small area, you know bone evidence it could just be that one or two individuals engaged in cannibalism and it wasn't the whole culture but in some of these we have reports saying like oh these people are cannibals when it's like a group of people that strongly dislikes the group of people that they're saying is cannibals were they really cannibals or was it a discriminatory thing um you know even hearing like a lot of times people talking about cultures there are cultures that do engage in cannibalism today it is still a thing. But a lot of times when you hear it talked about, you will hear them in a discriminatory way, like, oh, they're primitive. They studio cannibalism. It's a bit of, you know, a different thing. So there is controversy about whether or not these cultures actually did engage in cannibalism. And if they did, if it was like a widespread practice or, you know, now, like maybe it was just a serial killer. And we found that evidence, but it wasn't everyone. Right. Um, right. But if you look at cases, you know, cultural cannibalism is just cannibalism that's done for cultural reasons, mm -hmm. not for individual motivations. So if you look historically, um, you know, some cultures would eat um, deceased family members because it was, you know, some cultures believed that it was a way to keep their family member with them. Or uh, people in Papua New Guinea known for cannibalism, the Foray people, up until the 1950s, they ate the bodies of relatives to cleanse their spirits. So it was like a positive spiritual thing to eat the flesh of your dead relative to just help cleanse everything. The same time in Indonesian New Guinea, there's the Korowai tribe, and I read this really great um, Smithsonian magazine article called Sleeping with Cannibals, where this journalist basically actually went and stayed with this culture for a while that does engage in cannibalism currently, and was like, literally like, he's like, we all slept on the floor in this little treehouse, and that was what it was. And, you know, for the Korowai tribe... They're among the last people on earth, like, known to practice cannibalism. And they, basically, they believe in kakua. I may not be pronouncing that correctly. I'm very sorry if I'm not. But the kakua are witches who take on the form of men. It's believed that the kakua come disguised as a relative or friend of a person that he wants to kill, the Kakua eats the victim's insides while he sleeps, mm -hmm. replacing them with fireplace ash so the victim doesn't know he's being eaten. Then the, fa then the Kakua kills that person by shooting a magical arrow into his heart, and then they believe that you have to eat the flesh of the Kakua to kill the witch. Interesting. So... When talking about it, they very clearly say when they ask, like, why do you, the reporter asks them, like, why did you eat people? And they're like, we don't eat people, we eat kakua. Oh, I see. So it's a cultural belief where, like, in 
their culture, you know, they do believe in these witches. They do believe in these spirits that can take you over and kill you from the inside out. So to them, they are absolutely not eating their dead relative. They don't believe they're eating a human. They believe they're eating a kakua, and that's how they keep it from killing other members. It just made me think of, like, you know, in, um, like, Catholicism, how, like, a big part of, like, the communion piece is, like, you know, symbolically eating the body and drinking the blood. Like, it kind of reminds me of that in a way. Yeah, the transfiguration belief of, uh, Oh, this is bringing me back to my confirmation uh-huh. or my first communion. I had to take a first communion class. I was a Lutheran, not Catholic, but Missouri Synod Lutheran is like half a step away from Catholicism in terms of those things. So yeah, in my first communion class. So basically, some Christians, uh, depending on your individual branch of Christianity, some Christians believe that the communion wine and bread are literally transformed that's the triguration into the actual body and blood of christ and that you are literally eating it right some christians believe that it is a metaphor right and you are just eating bread and wine and symbolizing your belief in christianity by doing it because of the last supper Um, and some people weirdly enough believe both (laughs) that it's symbolic but it's also the body and blood of christ um so that's Which in that weird, where it's like, okay, like they're not actually like eating a body or drinking blood, but they're imagining it. But they believe that they are. Well, like I mean, they believe, yeah. they literally believe that when the priest blesses communion, they are actually eating the body and blood of Christ. Um, I never believed in transfiguration. I was very much a, like, this is clearly symbolic. This is like tasteless bread. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, because you were full-on Catholic. Did you have to do the the first communion for your full-on Catholic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Communion. I never did confirmation. I didn't, like, you didn't do confirmation? Catholic duties, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you're slacking on Catholicism you don't believe in. <laughs> but, yeah, that is, no, thank you for bringing that up. That's such a good example of a cultural thing yeah. that, like, even though, or you know. it's super if you, common here, but I'm sure to like, other people it's like, that's weird as shit. Right, and if you're Catholic, like, no offense to you, no, it's, it's like, it's your beliefs, but, like, the transfiguration belief is legitimately cannibalism. It is a cannibalistic belief. Um, I guess unless you're going with the feeling that Christ is not a person, per se, right. then maybe it's not cannibalism. I really, it's like such a gray area, um, but I do remember arguing with my first communion teacher on that quite strongly. When you're because like I was second grade, like, I have some feelings. <laughs> I did have some feelings. Also, did you do uh, wafers oh, yeah. and wine? What was your communion setup? The wafers? wafers. The I remember feeling so curious about them, like, what do they taste like? And I remember one time my mom, like, saved it in her mouth and, like, saved me, like, a little piece, like, <laughs> and I was like, well, this is disappointing. Oh, yeah, because they, um, with the Catholic communion, they physically put it in your mouth mm-hmm. for you, don't they? Okay, see, we didn't do it that far. Oh, okay. We did it, you cup your hands, and they put the wafer in your cupped hands while they bless you. That's how we always did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of my favorite church, 
<laughs> my favorite communion situation. Because every church does it differently. Yeah. And if you've attended lots of different churches, you'll see communion is such an interesting thing. It's just had a loaf of bread. And you just rip off a piece of the bread and you just straight up dunk it into the wine, which was not wine. It was Welsh's grape juice. Perfect. This is so what I need like, in my life. Right. That was good. It was a little bit more filling yeah. than the wafers. I've gone to churches with the wafers. I've gone to churches where you drink from the actual cup that everyone drinks yep. out of and they just like all alcohol wipe it yep. between each person. I've done the ones where like you get the little cups where you get like a shot of wine in a wafer. That's That's, that's closer to... Yeah. The bread is like, it's always... oh, you get a little snack. It's like, why don't we snack throw some time. cheese up in here? A <laughs> <laughs> little cheese tray action. Christ is just like, this is the take this bread, it's my body. Also take some cheese. It's delicious. It doesn't mean anything. This it's just a good addition to it. My soul. <laughs> it is a yeah, it's like such a thing. I didn't even think about that yeah. one, but that's like cultural cannibalism, yeah. the literal belief that your that your communion turns into that. So a lot more of us are cannibals than we than <laughs> Plot we think. Twist. Or <laughs> If you were, ra- I mean, even if you're not Catholic now, if you were raised Catholic, then I guess technically you cannibalized Jesus. I I'm not. I dabbled you d- with that. You dabbled. <laughs> you really dabbled. Yeah, no, I, that's, I have to, like, ask my Catholic family members about okay, that. what do you think about this? I'm curious. I'm like, but, yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting because it's something that's, like, such a taboo. Mm-hmm. But it still happens, mm-hmm. and totally, and it's like some of the, like, you know, if you think about it, it's a lot more widespread in American culture that we think, because there are a lot of religious people who believe in the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, I believe they call themselves crunchy. Oh, right. A lot of crunchy moms who eat their placentas, yep. which technically is auto-cannibalism, yep. because you're eating yourself. your own body, yep. <laughs> yourself. Um even though, I mean, yeah, I think, do you think eating your placenta is cannibalism? Some people do, some people don't. I, I mean, technically, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would. I also think more than anything, it's just kind of an odd choice, but I mean, <laughs> a lot of people right. do a lot of things. I mean, yeah, I would say it is technically cannibalism because, like, you are eating one of your organs. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's not one that you need anymore because it comes out when the baby comes out. But, like, you are literally eating an organ that you created. Because I think the placenta is technically an organ. Yeah. yeah. I think it counts as an organ. Right? Like, it's just like, so. it's, it's, um... Or, you know, something that's kind of gross that I know kids do sometimes is where they'll, like, pick and eat their scabs. Yeah. Picking and eating their scabs. That is, you're eating your skin. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff. It's just turning into a bit of a mind fuck here. I'm, like, going over all my life choices right now. How many times have I engaged in cannibalism? I... You want to say zero, but you kind of question yourself a little bit, right? I mean, and obviously this is a discussion, like, it's not meant to be polarizing. If you've eaten your placenta, we're not shaming you. Like, that's a choice, and you can do whatever you want. 
And actually, if you've eaten a placenta, I would really love to hear your yeah. experience about if it benefited you. Again, I, like, I, I don't think it's the weirdest thing. I no. think for me, I would need more evidence to do it. That's the type of person I am. Like, I want to see it laid out that there is a benefit. Yeah. So I would love to hear your experience about eating placentas yeah, and it. whether whether it was encapsulated whether you like full-on fried it up i've also heard of some people bury it in their gardens oh because it uh, decomposes in heard. the soil and grays grows i have heard there are women i think it's technically ecofeminism where they save their menstrual blood and oh, yeah. they will drink it to get like the mm-hmm. nutrients back or i've heard of them pouring it into their plants yes i've heard i've never heard of people drinking it i have heard of it um menstrual blood is very rich in nitrogen um also it's not that much blood everybody thinks it's blood it's a very small percentage of blood but it is i've heard of using it as a fertilizer because it's apparently a really good fertilizer um and if you are more eco-friendly and you're a menstrual cup user to begin with it's actually not that hard to save it mm-hmm. if you're already doing that like it's not that hard to dump it out in your garden at that point yeah. um do you think you would ever use menstrual blood in a garden i can't see myself doing that um i won't go into details but <laughs> it'd be a complicated situation for me even just like theoretically like oh. Um, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. take a hard pass, but that's okay. Probably take a hard pass. How about you? I mean, I would consider it. Because uh, honestly, I, I don't think that using menstrual blood as a fertilizer is that much weirder than using manure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're using cow poop in your garden already. <laughs> like, you're already using animal waste products. So I don't think it's that much of a leap to consider using it that might be tmi i don't know i might cut this out it's just an interesting discussion if you want me to cut it out i will i don't care um but it's just like a really interesting thing where like and even then if you're using because i've heard of like people using the placenta for trees people doing that um and actually there's a new movement to um caskets that are pods where you grow a tree and you use your body to do that. That's actually something I want to do with my father's ashes. I would like to turn him into a tree because he was a bit of a hippie and he was obsessed with the Ents from Lord of the Rings. So I think he would very much like it if we turned his ashes into a tree. So that's something I, if I ever own a home and have property, it's something that I plan on doing. And I've talked to other family members and his mom and she's on board with it and everything. Cause it was important to me that like, I mean, obviously, I have to be okay with it. I wanted them to be okay with it, too. But even then, there is, like, the ethical issue. If you're using human remains or menstrual blood or a placenta or a part of your body in order to fertilize food that you're using... Are you eating? Are you technically <laughs> eating the person? And this that's where, like, I don't... <laughs> I don't know how far you want to take it, right? Like, but... There are, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. interesting. Yes, it is interesting, and huh. yeah, because huh. it's like if I turn my father into an apple tree and then I eat the apples, am I eating am I? my <laughs> father? 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't want to eat my father. I know that much. Okay. okay I, know, I, I'm, I would prefer not to. I don't think I'd put, turn him into a fruit tree. I think maybe like a mighty oak or a willow or something. I don't know what kind of tree my father is. But, but it's just like... Like, how far do you want to take it? Because there's, like, some cannibalism that people are relatively okay with. Yeah. But then it get, then it hits a weird point. I don't know. This is turning into much more of a gray area like than a I very, thought like, it was going to. This is, like, a philosophical conversation. Uh, so I guess everybody, we would love to hear your thoughts <laughs> on exactly what point you are cannibal. Where on the spectrum are you? <laughs> Where on the cannibalism spectrum and we'd love um, I'd love some Catholics who believe in transfiguration yes. to weigh in on if they believe that eating the literal body and blood of Christ is cannibalism or not. Um, I'm curious. I am genuinely curious what the religious argument for that would be. And again, um, like, we're not shaming anyone if that's no. like your belief system. Like All we're saying is like we're genuinely curious and we want to know about it yeah i think we're both people that like we want to learn how people think and view things and i just i want to psychology nerds hello (laughs) psychology nerds so you know even like where your thoughts are like if you eat your scabs if you i know a lot of people if your lips are really chapped you'll just end up like biting dead skin off your lips and swallowing it is that cannibalism or not if you are the type of person that gets a cut on your finger and sticks your finger in your mouth, which most people yep. will do, like, we've all drank our own blood at some point. When your parents save your in teeth small as amounts. a child, is that animalistic activity? <laughs> oh, Jesus. I think it's weird. It is weird. Did you ever lose a tooth at school? Have I? Yeah. I don't think so. Because I lost one at school, and they would give us these little, like, plastic things to take our tooth home in. So sometimes it was, like, a tooth, and sometimes it's, like, a little treasure chest for your tooth. So I just, like, bring them home, and it's like, mother, here is my tooth. And she's like, throw that in the garbage. (laughs) What are you doing? Although, actually, baby teeth are an excellent source of stem cells. So you can donate your baby teeth to them, and they can use it in stem cell research, which is pretty cool, because, like, you're going to they're going to fall out of your head anyways so you might as well use them for scientific advancement but like yeah man and it's even like where is the line for creepy because like i don't think keeping your child's teeth is cannibalistic behavior but i do think it's kind of strange yeah there was like a venn diagram where it was like Serial killers, parents, both people collect teeth. <laughs> and hair. And hair. I I I don't I mean my mom did not keep a lot from my childhood. I think because like I'm the youngest and my parents had the three of us in less than three years, so I think everything was just chaos when i was born so there's like three pictures of me as an infant there are absolutely like no teeth or things like that but some people like for their baby's first haircut they'll keep like the lock of hair and like put it in a book which is also something a serial killer would do so it's just like a strange thing um some people keep umbilical cords and like the umbilical cord stub um foreskin Foreskins, yeah, some people will keep their babies' foreskins mm-hmm. in, like, a little scrapbook. I don't know who would want to see that, though. I mean, I think that might be religious. 
I, Maybe. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I don't... I'm obviously not Jewish, and I don't think I have any friends who are. Um, but I wonder what is, is like, the norm of what you do with it. Yeah. I didn't think they kept it, but I know some people who have. Yeah. Um, but, like, in more of, like, a scrapbook thing. Yeah. Like, oh, look at you. And, like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I love a baby scrapbook. Yeah. I love a baby. Like, they sell, like, cute little keepsake boxes to keep, like, oh, there's the onesie you came home in the hospital in. That stuff's adorable. Like, tiny baby clothes and pictures and ultrasounds. Great. Totally fine with all of that. I don't know if you need to keep an umbilical stub or, a dry, or like, a foreskin, though. Yeah. Like, if I was flipping through my husband's like baby book and, like, I saw that, I'd be like, whoa. Our relationship has changed. <laughs> I just feel like I did not, like, this has not benefited anyone. It's just like, okay. This made dinner officially weird. Um, yeah. Right? It's just like, if it's like, here's your baby teeth, it's like, why do you still have these? Great. Great. Like, their teeth. Excellent. They serve us no purpose now as adults, our baby teeth. Like, they fell out of our head. That's kind of the end of our relationship with them, in my opinion. Yep. Unless, again, you're using them for science. That's cool. But I think the thing is, and the moral of this very weird tangent (laughs) we've been on, is, like, there's a lot more gray areas about things. And if you really start to think, we're a lot creepier. Yeah, we are. A lot creepier than we think that that we are. Um, So, you know, I guess as we've learned, there's definitely a scale of cannibalism. (laughs) Yeah, there is. I think we just came up with it. We should patent it really quick. We should, uh, if you'll excuse us, we're going to go do some research on cannibalism scales. We're just going to create a Nobel Peace Prize for ourselves, and we'll be back. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, real quick, we're just going to patent some shit and uh, get back to you when we're exceedingly wealthy. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's a good time. It's a good time for all. So, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that cannibalism can be a cultural thing to so many different levels that we don't even think about. This is true. So, before we get all, like, and okay, the people that Lauren and I are going to talk about today are obviously, like, they're too far on the cannibalism scale. They are too far, and we all know that. The Malika on cannibalism scale. (laughs) But, you know, it's not fair to say, like, oh, all cannibals are Primitive. They're like these societies that are lesser than yeah, us. No. Because we still have a good hunk of it in our culture, yeah, too. It just looks different. So respect other people's culture. Obviously, Please. if they're like murdering and eating people, that is a problem. But if they believe in eating their dead relatives, that is, you know, their cultural thing. And they're not actually murdering people for it. And some it's of them have actually... Be- Consent is they're- key. Just like in anything right. else. Consent is key. And also, you know, with like the foray people, they've done it so much. Like they've eaten people for so long that they have evolved to be pretty much they don't get Kuru anymore. And Kuru is basically mad cow disease in humans. And you get it from eating human flesh. There are prions in the human body that if you eat them can get you super sick. And so most people who turn to cannibalism to that extent are going to get really, really sick. It does a lot to you that's really negative. But some people who have done it for so long, and it's such a thing of their culture that that's what they do when people die, Yeah. yeah. then a lot of them are actually, they're not even getting sick from it. And ultimately, 
Whatever. People know they're going to get eaten when they die. Yeah, everyone's consenting. They know. <laughs> they're um, consenting, most likely. So, yeah. Dope. Okay. Do you have more on that slide? Or? I do not okay. have more on that slide. I will go on to my slide. Alright, so um, now we're going to talk about survival and that being a reason for cannibalism. Yeah. Um, so, in the Soviet Union, people reported. Uh, People reported engaging in cannibalism due to famine. So, you know, I can I t- can understand dire situations. I talk about this in the serial killer episode with Chikatilo mm-hmm. quite a bit about some of the stuff that was happening. And uh, everybody was hungry. And sometimes they ate people so they didn't die. So that's a thing. Um, that is a thing. Obviously, the Donner Party. So the in Donner Party. 1846 headed to spring headed from Springfield, Illinois, to California. Uh, these folks took an untested shortcut and ended up stuck in the mountains due to snowstorms. Some left to get help resorted to cannibalism of others who died of natural causes to survive. So I think we've all heard this story before. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being very excited in social studies when this came up. You're like, it's my jam. This is my jam. So in the Donner Party, um, they actually eventually killed two people. Um, Many of the travelers resorted to killing and eating pack animals, consuming leather and tree bark and anything to survive. Only 45 of the original 89 ever reached California. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I I think we could understand that, like being in a very, like, dire situation and not having very many choices. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I think a lot of us could sit here now and be like, I definitely wouldn't eat someone. But when you're, like, about to die of starvation, it will change pretty quickly. And yeah. that's it with a, with all of these cases, because there's other famous cases of survival cannibalism, too, right, where people have no other option. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, a lot of the times, if you look at it, like, even in the Donner Party, they mostly ate people who died of other causes. Exactly. Yeah. Anything else on survival cannibalism? Anything you want to add? No, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Fair. That one's I. That one's pretty straightforward, mm-hmm. right? It's just like sometimes you have no choice. You Different category. So now, dun, dun, dun. the really stuff that I think everybody wants to hear the most, quite mm-hmm. frankly, this last category. It's technically called the criminal cannibalism um basically where you are cannibalizing because you want to it's not a cultural thing you don't need to eat this person you just really really want to um so there's some kind of subcategory so sexual cannibalism um is usually a psychosexual disorder so if you go back and listen to our paraphilic disorders episode you'll hear a lot about the psychology behind how these things started. So this is kind of a more specific one where people have a specific sexual drive to cannibalize. Um, So most criminologists and psychologists claim that there are sociopaths, so characterized by impulsivity, selfishness, and lack of remorse. Um, And there are arguably a lot of different subtypes. um, And there are some subtypes of sexual cannibalism that are not necessarily harmful to other people. There are definitely people who have a fetish of cannibalism, 
and are able to indulge it in a way that doesn't harm or actually eating the flesh of another human, right? Like some people will act stuff out and fantasize in other ways. Mm-hmm. So we're not saying that if you are sexually interested in cannibalism, you are necessarily asexual cannibalist or like right here you know there's a scale as we've now patented our cannibalism yes. scale well and also um, i think there was really a scale that we mentioned in the paraphilic disorder episode where it was like if there's like fantasizing about it and role-playing like with your partner and then mm-hmm. like the different like degrees of actually engaging Right, and so that kind of thing, some people are interested in it, but don't actually consume human flesh. Um, The motivational driving force under it appears to resemble that of sadomasochism from a dominance and submission perspective. So literally eating flesh is the ultimate act of dominance by a predator and ultimately submitting And if you're allowing it. So it kind of could fall under the BDSM thing. Um, Some psychologists speculate that it's related to childhood trauma or anxiety and um, results in oral aggression. Hmm. What? So that's kind of Freudian right there, yeah, a bit of a Freudian. oral phase thing. Um, and then some criminals who commit cannibalism have schizophrenia. Not shocked. Not shocked at all. So, I mean, that's kind of the underlying thing, and we've definitely talked a lot about the psychopath sociopath thing we've talked a lot about um you know the psychosexual disorders and paraphilic disorders Mm -hmm. so if you haven't listened to those episodes and you want to hear a lot more about it please go there but i think for now we're gonna get into because i we already talked about the medical uses so i think we can skip that one we've covered it um so now we can get into the juicy stuff where we just talk about cases the juice okay lauren who are you going to talk about today megan i'm going to talk about armin muse i think that's how you say his last name but i didn't actually research that um so i'm just gonna go with armin um this is a high quality podcast you guys yes Uh, rate and subscribe (laughs) Um, we research the information a lot and the actual pronunciation, not at all. We should work to on the wayside. that. Um, so yeah. I'm just going with Armin, and he is also known as the Master Butcher. Um, so this fellow um, was born December 1st, 1961, in Essen, Germany. Um, he actually came from an affluent family. His father left the family when Armin was young, and as a youngster... Armin lived with his mother at their family mansion. He worked with the army for a while, but continued to stay with his mother, and later he began working as a computer technician. Due to the tyrannical nature of his mom, Armin was never able to make friends. So we're kind of getting a sense here that his mom was pretty, um, you know, dominating, um... It, it reminds me of the typical, like, uh, profile of, like, mothers of, like, serial killers. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of the vibe I get. Anyway, so he later told the court during the murder tri- well, not to give it away, but some sort of murder happens, um, that he had been a well-behaved boy, but had been obsessed with the story of Hansel and Gretel. 
In particular, the chapter about fattening up Hansel to cook and eat him, which is interesting. Um, Armin was actually lacking a father figure. Um, so his father left them when he was young, um, and therefore he created an imaginary brother called Frankie, and he would talk to Frankie about his first cannibalistic thoughts, and Frankie would quote-unquote listen, um, and that was something his mom never did. So again, just kind of emphasizing that relationship they had. Um, at age 12, Armin began to fantasize about eating his friends so that they would become a part of him and stay with him forever. A desperate solution for a very unlonely, misunderstood child. Which is actually, like, pretty sad when you think about it. Yeah. Um, in 1999, Armin's mother died and left him the family's large mansion house in, um, Stitten? Um... So he was totally alone for the first time in his life without the demands of his controlling mom. Um, he reportedly constructed a shrine to her in the house, which is very, like, Bates Motel-y, um, complete with a plastic mannequin that would lay on a pillow each night. It's, like, very Norman Bates from Psycho right there. Yep. Yeah. Want to vomit. Anyway. It's not what you want. That's not ideal. Um, so that happened. Then he turned to the internet to find solace, because again, he didn't have like those social skills to make friends, so not that, <laughs> not that like if you make friends online, you don't have social skills, but what I'm saying is like it was easier for him that way because he didn't have much practice in person. Um, so he turned to the internet to find solace. He was attracted to sites that promoted pornography and cannibalism. Armin had a bisexual tendency, or that was just a sexual preference, um, and he had relations with many of his army colleagues, actually. Um, he also made frequent visits to sex workers as well. So, on to the murder and stuff. So, as he starts, you know, venturing on these websites, um, he was looking for a willing volunteer and he posted an advertisement on a website called the Cannibal Creek. The Creek? Um, and this is a cannibalism fetish website. Um, and he stated that he was looking for a well-built 18 to 30-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. Um, so, I mean, at least he's fighting people of age, I guess. Um, so, essentially, someone named Bernd Hergen Armando Brandes... The engineer from Berlin had answered the advertisement in March of 2001. March 9th of 2001, the pair met and filmed a videotape at Armin's home in the small town of Wustefeld. Brandes swallowed 20 sleeping pills and a bottle of cough syrup, likely causing an effect of slowed breathing and extreme tiredness slash sleepiness. Um, Brandes initially insisted that Muse Armin uh, attempt to bite his penis off. Um, so then Armin began amputating Brandes' penis um, with his agreement, so again, consent was part of it, and the two men attempted to eat it together. Armin used a knife to remove Brandes's penis, and Brandes appeared to try to eat some of his own penis, but could not because it was too tough, and he put it and as he put it, too chewy. 
I actually did find in a lot of research that I was doing with this, weirdly, they repeatedly talk about how the penis is not a good part to eat because it's so chewy. So that came up in like 15 different things I found that like, the penis is not a good part to eat I mean, in cannibalism. Good to know if we're ever asked on Jeopardy. Like, just in case that question comes up on a test you're taking for some reason. That's the worst place. Yeah. Yeah. Very weird. Um, so, yeah. Good to know. Um, Armin then decided to fry the penis in a pan with salt, pepper, wine, and garlic. Then he fried it with some of Brandes' fat. But by then, it was too burnt to be consumed. He then chopped the penis up into chunks and fed it to his dog. So, all in all, that did not work out the way he wanted it to. Then, he ran Brandes a bath, and before, um, he ran Brandes a bath, and I guess, like, he just kind of sat and read a Star Trek book for a while while Brandes was in the bath. Um, he would check on him every 15 minutes. And during this time, what actually was happening is Brandes was just laying bleeding to death in the bathtub. Um, Armin finally actually killed Brandes by stabbing him in the throat, after which he hung the body on a meat hook. The incident was recorded on a four-hour videotape. Armin dismembered and ate the corpse over the next ten months, storing body body parts in his freezer under boxes and consuming up to 20 kilograms which is 44 pounds of flesh which is like a ton i can't even imagine that that's a lot um according to prosecutors armin committed the act for sexual pleasure kind of like what we were talking about um armin was arrested in 2002 when a college student alerted authorities to new advertisements online um, and investigators searched his home and found the body parts on the videotape of the killing. So then, on January 30th, 2004, Armin was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to eight years and six months in prison. Like, what? Wow. So while in prison, Armin had since become a vegetarian, <laughs> and he believes there are about 800 cannibals in Germany. I don't know where he's getting these statistics from, but it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then in 2005, the German court actually ordered a retrial after prosecutors appealed the sentence, arguing that he should have been convicted of murder, obviously, because he killed for sexual gratification and a motive to prove and a motive proved by his having videotaped the crime. So yeah. the court ruled that the original trial had ignored the significance of the video and disproving the argument that Armin only killed because he had been asked to kill, finally sentenced to life imprisonment, which I feel is wow. much more appropriate. That sounds better, yeah. I think we all can feel more comfortable with that choice. Um, yeah. I- but... I mean, it's, like, interesting that he was looking for somebody who wanted to be eaten, but it's also, like, you could have let him live, dude. Right. Like, it's, like you already, you tried to eat him, like, he's still alive in the bathtub, you could have called 911. That's what I'm saying, yeah. And he could have survived this, so it's, like, 
that and that's why like even though the guy's like he consented it's just like still you could have saved his life and you chose not to right. so and that's like, a bit more really... like no you just you wanted to kill him right and did he really you consent wanted him to, die. to like bleeding to death in the bathtub like no so no. you probably should have called 911 um or whatever you or the equivalent <laughs> if you're in germany and you know please tell us um yeah but yeah so yeah, very, very disturbing stuff. I also thought it was very interesting, uh, just a tidbit about how he grew up and how he thought about eating friends to kind of keep them with him forever, which, again, I think it's just, like, very sad. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of, actually, like, songs about this. Um, I think one, um, I think Ozzy Osbourne wrote one, um, but there is a popular one by the band Ramstein. Um, Ramstein. Ramstein about this yeah so if, if you're into that go look that up yeah so very yeah. interesting very interesting very disturbing yeah all right well thank you for sharing your story i very much liked it oh, it was a good one so i'm gonna talk about another famous cannibal who had a song written about him and this was written by the rolling stones as a matter of fact Ooh. they wrote a song about this gentleman um so I am going to talk about the very weirdly famous Ishwe Sagawa. I'm just going to call him Sagawa because in the documentary that I watched about it, they just called him Sagawa. So, weirdly enough, I'm going to connect it to yours a little bit because Sagawa was also born into a wealthy family. Oh. So, strange coincidence, right? He was born on April 26th. 1949 that's my birthday's april 25th so we're almost birthday buddies and that would be horrifying so i'm glad he's the 26th um and he was born months early which i mean is bad enough now but especially back then not a great time to have a premature baby so this is in 1949 he was born early he was frail he was tiny he almost died um, during the birth process, and he suffered many health issues, um, including like a disease that impacted his intestines. He was very small, and he apparently had tiny hands. Mm-hmm. Now, in the documentary, he speaks a lot. I didn't think he looked that small and tiny and frail. Um, but he's like really insecure. He's only four foot nine. He's extremely sensitive about his height. And he talks a lot um, in the documentary, The Cannibal That Walked Free. It is available on uh, YouTube if you want to watch it. It's really good. It's only like a 40 minute, 45 minute thing. So it's a good, nice watch. Um, but he talks a lot about this. And he talks about thinking that he's ugly and how like no woman would ever want him. And he's so ugly and weak and unattractive. Um, so he's exceedingly sensitive about this yeah. and about this whole thing. Um, and he says that he became fascinated with the idea of eating another person as a little kid after he had a dream about himself and his brother being in a large pot prepared to be eaten by others. Weird. So he had this dream as a kid and he just got fascinated by it. Um, And so kind of as he got older, you know, he continued to obsess about it and thinking about eating people. And then he hit puberty. 
and it became sexual. So he was fascinated before puberty, but as we've said a million times, what fires together wires together, and so he's fascinated with eating other human beings, and then it's hitting puberty, and suddenly he's connected sex and eating people. He was particularly interested in western women he is from japan and so he was very interested in particularly white women blonde women blue like blonde hair blue eyes that was who he was interested in eating Mm. he really wanted to eat a western woman Mm. so unluckily for her a german woman moved into his neighborhood oh no and in 1972 he broke into her apartment and he she was asleep, and he broke in in the middle of the night, and he was intending on eating part of her butt. He really wanted to eat the buttocks. I believe it was the left butt cheek he really wanted to eat. Okay. And uh, he didn't, it doesn't sound like he had that much of a plan. Yeah. He just kind of broke in and was going to eat her, but only part of her. He didn't so actually want to kill her. And um, so he broke in. She woke up and attacked him. And he got caught. And so he was charged with rape because the police are like, oh, you broke into this woman's house in the middle of the night. You clearly want to rape her. So he got charged with rape. But his very wealthy father uh, just kind of made those charges go away. So nothing really happened with that. Then, so he kind of attempted and he failed. And so it seems like... After that, he kind of realized that he was going to need more of a plan if he actually wanted to eat someone. So he was also extremely, I'm saying was, he's still alive. He's a very smart guy. He's like a super smart guy. And in 1981, he moved to France to go to the famous Sorbonne University and get his PhD in comparative literature. So, really, really intelligent guy. So, he moved there to get his PhD, and while he was there, he met a woman named Renee Hartfelt, and he was, like, instantly obsessed with her. He was talking about seeing her walking into the class and just being in love with her immediately. Um, And they became friends. She invited him and a bunch of people out, and the two of them became friends. I found one article that said that he tried to tell her he was in love with her, and she said no. Um, but I only found that one article, so I, he was obviously in love with her, but I don't know if he told her that and actually tried to have a relationship with her. Right. Uh, but they became friends. And so on June 11th, 1981, he invited her over to help him translate some poetry. So he was like, hey, you want to come over, have dinner, we'll like work on this school stuff. Okay. So she said yes. Um, but he had bought a gun specifically to kill her. Oh. So he did not plan on uh, her leaving ever. So he shot her. Uh, He then raped her body. And then ate parts of it. Um, He describes eating her body as extremely pleasurable. Um, And he, if you really want to look into it, I'm not going to go too far into what he did. It's very disturbing and there's a lot of details published. So if you are interested... Google it, read all about it. Um, but he was really into eating her, and uh, he said that human meat tastes like pork. Probably. A bit. 
so, you know, and he's, like, talking about kind of being surprised by certain things, but he tried a lot of her body very quickly. Um, he kind of spent some time eating lots of different parts and then decided to, um, that he had to dispose of the body. So he put some parts, including her lips, in his refrigerator because um, he wanted to continue eating her. I believe he had her for a few days um, before he actually disposed of the body. So he chopped her up and put her in two suitcases. Okay. And he called a cab. And had the cab driver drop him off at a park. And the cab driver is interviewed in the documentary. And he's like, it was really weird. Because you'd think with these two massive suitcases, he'd want to go to a train station, to an airport, to somewhere, like, to actually leave. But he did not. He wanted to go to the park. So he was going through this park. He was going to dump the suitcases in the lake. That was his plan. Um... But the lake had a restaurant on it that was really, really busy. So people saw this small man struggling with the suitcases. Like, apparently he had a really hard time with it. So he's struggling with the suitcases. And he eventually just, he's getting too much attention. Like, there are other people at the park. And so he just decides to, like, drop the suitcases and leave. So somebody looks at the suitcases, realizes it's a human body, and calls the police. And a bunch of people saw him, and the cab driver thought it was weird and remembered him. So he got caught really quickly, and he fessed up immediately. Yeah, that wasn't very well thought out at all. Right? So he's just like, yep, I killed her. I ate her. This is what happened. He still had body parts in the fridge. They looked in the fridge. So they found him. They caught him really, really quickly. Um, So, of course, his wealthy father... Um, hired him a very good lawyer. What is wrong with his dad? (laughs) You know, I mean, I get that people deserve to have a good lawyer and everybody deserves good legal representation. But his dad hired him a really great lawyer um, and he was found unfit to stand trial and declared insane. Okay. So it's like when you, a lot of times people will say like, oh, you want to plead not guilty due to mental disease or defect. That's kind of how we word it. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens when that's what happens in your case Mm -hmm. or when you're found unfit to stand trial is you're sent to an institution until you're sane or fit to stand trial. It doesn't actually like get you out of anything. Um, And you can oftentimes be held for quite a while. So he, he was held for four years. Okay. In France. And eventually they worked out a deal where he was extradited back to Japan. Mm. And um, just under the condition that he never returned to France. So he's not allowed to go to France. Okay. But the Japanese facility actually said that he wasn't insane, but he was evil. That's like <laughs> literally what they said. It's like, he's not crazy. He's evil, but he's Harsh. not crazy. Um <laughs> Not saying that people with mental illness are crazy, but, like, you know what I mean? They're just like, no, he's not legally insane. Um, He knows exactly what he did. He doesn't have anything that would keep him that. He's just an evil person. And after, I think, 15 months in the Japanese facility, he was let go. 15 months? Like, 15 months, right? Because he wasn't considered legally insane. So they couldn't keep him indefinitely, and allegedly 
the paperwork from France that they needed in order to, like, the information on the investigation that they would have needed in order to charge him in France Mm -hmm. never came through. So they had no paperwork from France, and he just checked himself out. How? Like, he just decided, like, I'm done. I'm allowed to leave. And he legally was. All right. So he just gets to go out. And this is where I think it takes a turn. And we're going to loop this. Please listen to our celebrities episode. Because a lot of what happens next is, like, on us, not necessarily. Like, he's a big part of it. But, like, really, guys, what are you thinking? So he wrote some books while he was in the Japanese Institute. Um, he wrote him some books, and one is a fictional account, fictional account, of a guy who murdered a woman and then ate her body and raped her corpse, and so everyone's like, this is just an account of your crime, right? Yeah. It sold, like, 200,000 copies. Naturally. It's not released in English. I was gonna try. I I found some PDFs, but I couldn't verify that the person who was translating it actually, like, knows enough to try like i found it on a blog that someone had translated it to english and had some chapters of a pdf and some lines but like i didn't really want to include that because i don't know what that person's credentials are no offense if that was you i'm sure you're great but i don't want to say oh this is what he said if i can't verify that it's what he said so yeah so he wrote all these books and they sold a lot of copies and he got really really famous um which is so much about us right. and about how we view celebrities and like live vicariously. So he has gotten super famous um, about that. And he, you know, clearly has had this psychosexual disorder since he was, he hit right. puberty. Like this is an ongoing thing. And like we said, a lot of the times this stuff is not necessarily tradable, but it's also not necessarily enough to keep you as legally insane and right. keep you institutionalized long term. Um, and actually, after he had um, after he had been arrested the first time for the attempted rape, he actually met with a psychologist who said he was extremely dangerous. Really? Yeah. So, like, they knew he was dangerous, but there is sometimes this legal thing, and since, like, he didn't actually go through trial, he's not being held responsible for this. So sometimes legal loopholes happen where it's like, you're not technically insane, so we can't keep you, but you're also not really fit to stand trial. And if you're looking at this, it's the difference between... French mental health and Japanese mental health. And I'm not going to say which is right or which is wrong. I don't know. But, like, every area has its own laws about what would constitute legally insane and what would constitute fit to stand trial. And so this stuff can happen with extradition where it's just like, well, we're not going to try him for something that happened in a different country and we don't, he doesn't meet our legal qualifications, so we can't keep him. And those things do happen. That's so crazy. Right? And so that's pretty much what happened here. Like, they knew he was dangerous, but he got sent to France, and this is what he did. He got sent back, and he's just not held responsible at all. So, not only has he written books, he's written comic books, he's been interviewed on talk shows about it, he's done the media circuit. Most disturbingly, he has starred in multiple pornographic films about cannibalism, where he pretends to cannibalize women. Um, yeah that is exceedingly disturbing his behaviors right absolutely um 
So he's essentially become a celebrity because of this. He currently lives in Japan under a fake name. He is still completely free at this point um, with really no negative consequences for his life about this. There were tons for his family. Um, his brother developed an illness that led to him leaving his job. His mom actually attempted suicide. Wow. So, like, this has had a massive impact on his family, but not really that big of an impact on him. Weird. And actually, it's had a positive impact in his eyes because he's now famous for this. Um, so, in the documentary, you see, like, his bedroom. And it is entirely plastered and jet with pictures of Japanese women. And he is now saying that as he's gotten older, he realizes that Japanese women are the most beautiful and he likes to cannibalize beautiful women. That's why he was going for Western women. Cause he thought they were more beautiful than Japanese women. But now he thinks Japanese women, he openly admits that he will cannibalize again, Oh my God. but he's not interested in killing people. Okay. So basically, he just wants to eat bodies. He's very open about it. He's like, yes, I will do it again. I really want to eat a Japanese woman this time. Um, so he's just kind of openly Doing living okay. as a celebrity because he has a paraphilic disorder towards cannibalism. Ugh. And is and, and the other thing is, um, I strongly recommend watching the documentary because he's in it just walking around talking about his crime openly right you can see videos of him talking about it mm -hmm. i think the just watch the video and look at how this man walks okay <laughs> really it's something else it's like there is something deeply unsettling about the way that he walks mm -hmm. and like i can't really describe it on this maybe i'll put the a clip if i can find like a short clip of this of him i'll put it up on our facebook page but there's just so many things about him and the thing is i can obviously i haven't assessed him i was unable to find like documentation of what his diagnoses were at any of these exams mm -hmm. but he has absolutely no remorse whatsoever. No. Like, he talks about it so casually, so calmly. He's like, yeah, it was great. Like, he has such a cold demeanor, and it's very disturbing. Ew. I'm going to yeah. watch it now. You should watch it. I will. So I think it's definitely, if you're looking at, like, the psychopath says you have people without remorse and without empathy, That's if you want to, like, see an example of what it looks like, definitely watch this documentary and just watch him talk about it. Well, that sucks. So that's psychology plus what's wrong with legal systems just wrapped up. And what's wrong with us being obsessed with celebrities? Like, what are you doing? What is everyone and also, doing? To anybody who's actually watched that porn that he's in, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, he is at, he murdered someone and ate her, and now he's acting it out, and you're masturbating to it. Just, like, let that sink in. Just that's, take a minute. Go for a walk. That's crossing a line. Crossing a line right there. Yeah. Um, not trying to kink shame people, but when there's murder involved, there's a whole there's different There's a line. Level. There's a few. There is a line. There's a line, because this woman obviously did not consent to any of it. All right. Well, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> very another, disturbing stuff. Another very lengthy episode, which I love. I feel like you guys are going to get longer episodes just because, like... Lauren, I don't know about you, but, like, obviously we do a lot of Skype and Zoom calls and doxy.me with our clients. Mm -hmm. 
But it's like whenever I'm actually like talking to a friend, it's like, friend, what is life like in your home? Like, it's so exciting to I see know. other people right well, now. Well, it feels totally different because like, you know, with this, we could talk about like ourselves. Whereas like when we're meeting the clients, we don't <laughs> like that would be weird. They're like, how are you doing? And it's like, Good. I'm fine. Or like, it's been a, you know, difficult week with being inside. Like you can say stuff like that, but yeah. like, well, listen to this. Yeah, Let's no. make it about me, shall mm-hmm. we? I'm always like, I will entertain questions about my like casual small talk questions about myself for like a minute and a half to yeah. two minutes. And then it's like, let's turn this back on you. Yep. I do the same thing. Yeah. Um, so. Do you have any good shit this week? Well, first of all, we need to plug all our shit. So follow our Facebook page. Yep. Um, Spooky Psychology St. Charles. Mm-hmm. Follow Lauren's therapeutic Instagram at. Lauren underscore Malika. M-O-L-L-I-C-A. Just in case. And it's LMFT at the end, oh, right? Oh, LMFT as well. <laughs> Please follow the LMFT one, um, and please follow my therapy Insta at Megan Baker LCSW. Give them credentials. Um, yeah, um, we give will us some stars li- and reviews. Yes. Rate, review, subscribe, please. Um, tell your friends. Yeah, we're really close to seven thousand downloads right now, this and it'd be exciting. a nice milestone to hit. So tell all your friends, tell your creepy coworker, tell anybody, your mom, whoever you think might be interested. Spread yeah. the word. This is a and fun community, and I feel like the more of us are part of it and chatting and open to talking, it could be cool. We would love more people uh, to join us here in Spooky Psychology Land. Yep. And um, we will link below our Patreon if you are able and have extra money to burn right now. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of us do, but if you are one of those people and you would like to give us some of that money, that would be very nice of you. It helps us cover the cost of hosting this podcast um, and just our time and and maybe some better equipment in the future. And coffee. There's a lot of coffee necessary to get through this research sometimes. Um, and also sometimes we like to get books and stuff to yeah. research more thoroughly. So uh, please support us. We will also link our sponsor, Therabox. That is still going. If you want to buy some self-care stuff, please use our affiliate link. We will get 10% um, off of anything you buy off their website, whether it be their subscription boxes, which is awesome. Mine is going to get delivered tomorrow, which I'm Ooh, very excited because then I can open Ooh, I could do an unboxing. I'm actually planning on opening it up on my birthday, which is Saturday. Oh, I don't, then wait until I, then. I don't think, like, any gifts that may have been purchased for me are going to arrive by my birthday because shipping is taking so long right now. So I'm like, <laughs> I will take my Therabox. That is my gift to myself. There you go. So, yeah, I can do an unboxing video. That'd be yeah. fun. Um, and then we will... I know we talked about this last time. We will, at some point, do another watch of the freud thing i planned on doing it and then some stuff happened in my life that i had to take care of but i will work on getting that up um good shit lauren what is your good shit can you start um gosh i i've been really liking um i I guess like i i'm part of like um what's it called like different 
groups for like the area that I live in. And so like mm-hmm. people will post things like, oh, this is going on and this is going on. And there's been like for little kids who've been having birthdays, um, people will do like parades where they create like Aww. little like car parades for them to like make them feel special on their birthday. And that's I think so that's cute. really cute. That is adorable. That's a good one. Um, mine is actually quite similar. Um, I am loving all of these scavenger hunts people are setting up for kids. Um, and adults, too. There's a couple different ones going on, like putting hearts in your window or putting, like, teddy bears so they can do, like, an animal hunt or, like, all of these different things. Um, I've been seeing a lot of really creative chalk drawings in my neighborhood, and it makes me happy. Me, too. And I, you know, I think this is a hard time for a lot of us, but I am glad to see so many people doing their best to make a difference for the lives of other people. Because honestly, like, if you're having a bad day and you see some, like, cute little kids drawing, like, it just makes you happy. Agreed. And, like, you see, like, all these hearts and windows and you see all of these things. And it's just nice that we're able to come together as a community while we're separated. Uh, great. So everybody do cute things if you can. Like if you have the emotional energy to, if you don't, I completely understand. I've had those days myself lately. But, you know, if you got the emotional energy, try to do things. I also got to Skype with my nephew. Oh, and I've never Skyped with him before, actually. Aww. So that, that was really cute. nice. To see, he's really, he got a mask. My sister has been sewing masks for them. And he has one, and he, like, thinks that he's a ninja. I mean, clearly, that's the only... So he's, he's so about it, and it's just like, ugh. Kids are great, and I think sometimes when you're feeling really down, it's just nice to see kids doing cute, normal kid stuff. Agreed. Like, I liked on Easter, people, when they, um posted online like videos of their kids easter egg hunting I was like oh Aww. this is great i love this yeah the try guys <laughs> this is like easter egg hunted but complete opposite um i like the try guys i think some of their videos i like more than others but that's the I same for everything they're youtubers oh you'll love them look them up but they did this video of a drunk versus high um Easter egg hunt, mm-hmm. so two of them got completely hammered and two of them got really high, uh-huh. and then they did an Easter egg hunt to see who would get more eggs. Uh-huh. And it is the funniest thing. Oh, really? Especially, they're in California, marijuana's legal, they're totally, like, legally fine, but, like, the ones that are high, like, some of the eggs have, like, little notes, and they're like, you get a crunch wrap, you get this, and, like, different food, and the high ones keep trading eggs to get food from the drunk ones, because they got, they're like, I will give you three eggs for that crunch wrap, <laughs> and it's, it's funny, and so I'm just, I, you know, I think anything funny right now is good. I agree. I fully agree. So, right, yeah. my girl. Well, thank you for getting spooky with us. Yes, thank you. We will catch you next time and surprise you with another episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.